0: <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> hey, this is a really simple investing podcast. I'm your host, Floyd Saunders, and today I'm very excited to have with us as our guest, John Jennings. John is the president of a $15 billion wealth management firm in St. Louis. He's also an adjunct professor at Washington University's Olin Business School. He has both a finance and a law degree from the University of Missouri and certifications in investment decisions and behavioral finance. So, John, welcome to the show.
1: Great. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Excited what to be I'd, here.
0: Yeah, good. What I'd really like to dig into is your book, The Uncertainty Solution. I found this book to be extremely fascinating. Uh, I've worked in the financial services industry for well over 30 years and I've read tons of books on investing, tried to figure it out over the years, to, you know, educating myself basically because I didn't go get a degree in finance. Yeah. Um, but your book kind of turns the ideas of investing upside down and, and shakes the whole world of how people should think about investing. And it's extremely well written. Yeah, thank um, you.
1: Um, well, well, I had some good editors.
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, editing always helps, right? Um, it does. But you, you talk about this idea of the uncertainty solution, the idea that there's always a quest for, for certainty in investing, and it just doesn't exist. Talk to me about that idea of needing to be certain about what we're doing in investing and why that creates a problem for so many investors.
1: Yeah, so let me start back why humans have this quest for certainty. Like we hate uncertainty. Well, it's a little bit more complex and nuanced than that. But really, the entire idea of uncertainty is when we can't spot a pattern, Mm -hmm. right? And if you think about it, if you were – an early human living a few hundred thousand years ago your ability to spot patterns allowed you to see into the future which could give you a survival advantage you know right seasonal and weather patterns and patterns of uh prey or uh, you know just for food or are these berries poisonous or nutritious or and on and on and on all of these things gave you a survival advantage so those of our ancestors that could better spot patterns survive longer, and we are their descendants, right? So what happens is when we can't spot a pattern, we feel worried or anxious, or even it triggers our fight-or-flight response sometimes. But when we resolve uncertainty, the opposite happens. Our parasympathetic nervous system kicks in, we calm, relax, and even get a hit of dopamine, which creates pleasure. Uh So uncertainty feels bad, resolving uncertainty feels good. So this is known as what's known as one of our primary human motives, meaning that it colors and flavors so many of our emotions and our decisions, most of which is subconscious. We don't even realize it. So we want patterns. And when we can't see them, we don't feel good.
0: So the average retail investor, when they start investing and they look at the market and they see it rising, they want to get in because there's a certain level of uncertainty in a rising market, right? And we've had a strong bull market since the market crash in two thousand and seven all the way up to mm-hmm. two thousand and twenty. Uh, and that caused a lot of wealth in
1: America, right? Okay. And, and then and it was over a six is over a six hundred percent return. Amazing.
0: Yeah. And then uh, the market starts to correct itself like in the cycle of the COVID pandemic and mm-hmm. people jump out of the market and panic. Why does that happen and what's the alternative?
1: Yeah, I, I think it happens because you know, we tend to be more short-term, right, in, uh-huh. in our our views and in our thinking. And, and again, the uncertainty makes us. It's it's. It feels like you know we, we have these ancient brains. Like our brains haven't changed much from hundreds of thousands of years ago, but the world has changed dramatically. So we start feeling like we have an existential threat from things like stock market gyrations. I mean, we're not really in danger of uh, physical harm, but our bodies react as if we are. Financial harm. Yeah, so it's hard to set it aside and say, okay, you know, we know rationally that the stock market goes up and down, right? So, uh, you know, the story goes is when somebody asks, Uh, J.P. Morgan, John Morgan Pierpont, uh, John Pierpont Morgan back in the 1920s, you know, what what are your views? What is the stock market going to do? He said, it will fluctuate, my boy, it will fluctuate, right? So we know that intellectually, but our bodies are set up differently, right? And we're, we're really fighting millions of years of evolution when we try to rationally overcome how we feel when faced with uncertainty, And so you talk about
0: this idea of uncertainty in the beginning of your book, and there's a couple of uh, studies that you referenced there, and you talk about the idea of a cognitive closure around some things. Mm -hmm. Uh, Talk to us a little bit more about what that means.
1: Yeah, so when we feel uncertain, one of the things we do is we have this need for cognitive closure, as it's called. And what's interesting is individuals vary in how strong of an effect this is. Some people have a very very high need for uh, cognitive closure, and some it's it's not as, as big, but we all share it to some extent. And, and what it leads to is something called seizing and freezing. So what it means is when we feel uncertain, we kind of thrash or flail around looking for an explanation that makes sense of what's going on, right? Mm-hmm. And, that's called, and we will seize on pretty much the first explanation that fits our worldview. So that's called seizing. So now we feel good because now we we feel like we've have the world that makes sense we have an explanation or we attribute a cause to something, and oftentimes that it may be a wrong explanation you know maybe maybe we think we've seen a pattern and it's really just random noise, but we seize on it and then what happens is we freeze, which is we we don't want to readdress or have our uh, conclusions or explanations um, challenged because we don't want to experience that uncertainty again. So a great example was in COVID. So we all had a huge amount of uncertainty, you know, back in February, March, April, May of 2020. And there were all sorts of different viewpoints of what this COVID pandemic spreading the globe meant to us. And some people said, it's just like the flu. And other people were like, it's just like the plague, (laughs) right? And um, others that said, oh, you know, masking is great. Others, masking horrible. Then when we had vaccines, oh, everybody should get the vaccine. Nobody should get the vaccine, et cetera, et cetera. But what was interesting is, is as the science changed and the virus changed and as we learned more, everybody pretty much needed to change their views, no matter which side of the political or COVID spectrum you came from. Your views needed to change because the facts changed, but so few people wanted to because they gained certainty by grasping on to whatever explanation made sense to them for what was going on, and it's fascinating, and it was just textbook for one of the ways that we all react to uncertainty. And in those particular cases, there were so
0: many instances where people clung to facts that were just conspiracy ideas uh, and created so much more confusion in the place. But as it relates to the market, the market took a sharp correction and then a recovery while the COVID pandemic was still going on. Can you talk to us a little bit about how you saw that occurring and how that affects people's thinking around investing?
1: Yeah. So back back in oh eight oh nine, when the market dropped fifty seven percent from its peak uh-huh. to its trough, and we had the you know of course the great financial crisis, I, I really didn't know how to advise clients. Like I thought to be a a good advisor, I need to know everything what that was going on and be able to have some ability to predict what was going to happen.
0: Yeah, and you talk about that extensively in your book, right?
1: Yeah, and, and I, I couldn't. Like I couldn't see a way out. I didn't know what was going to happen. I was paralyzed when it came to advising my clients. And it caused me a lot of stress and angst. And really the Mm -hmm. genesis of this book was after that. Like I need to find a better way. And it sort of plays out in the COVID crisis where you're right from from February 26 to March 23rd, the the S&P 500 dropped almost 35%. And it it dropped quicker than any time in history, including in the nineteen twenty nine crash. It was, mm-hmm. as we all remember, it was it was breathtaking. But the the bottom was March twenty third, and I wrote an article in Forbes on March twenty six, and it was titled something to the effect of, "Even though a recession is looming, it doesn't mean you should sell out of the stock market." And it made the point that you cannot. Make stock market decisions based on what you think is going on or is going to go on in the economy. And a great example would be is imagine that you and I were sitting around on you know March 23rd or March 26th and we had a crystal ball. And we knew for a fact that we had just had our thousandth COVID death reported in the US. But our crystal ball told us what was going to happen you know, we're not going to just shut things down for a few weeks or a few months. It's going to go on for years. Uh, The thousand COVID deaths is going to grow into almost 350,000 by the end of the year, nearly 6 million worldwide over the next three years. Pro sports leagues are going to cancel their seasons. We can't travel internationally, even to Canada. GDP is going to drop by almost 9% next quarter. Um, That unemployment is going to spike to 14.7%, by far the worst that we've seen since the Great Depression. Like if we knew all those things, most people would say I'm going to move to cash or treasuries or gold or put it, on, you know, put it, put money in my backyard and dig a hole. But what happened is March 23rd was the bottom, as we know, and mm-hmm. the stock market rebounded by 70 percent just through the rest of 2020. So and that was a very quick it, rebound, right? It was unbelievable. And what it tells you is you cannot use what's going on in the economy or news from the real world to tell you what's going to happen in the stock market. It's a mental model I talk about in my book called the stock market is not the economy, right? So you uh-huh. can't use what's going on in the economy or news in the real world to inform your stock uh, positions or your, your strategy. It, it kind of flips the other way around. Like the, the economy doesn't predict the stock market. The stock market predicts the economy, ish not perfectly so the stock market moves in advance of things feeling better and that's what happened in 0809 it's happened time and time a um, time and time again
0: let me ask you a question about that the stock market moves in advance of economic changes and you say that the stock market prices in some of those economic changes ahead of time but how do the experts in the financial trading industry know What's going to go on in the economy over and above what economic indicators might indicate for the rest of us as consumer investors, retail investors.
1: Well, you know, that's a, that's a really interesting point because investment experts and economists are horrible at predicting the future. Yeah. So, it's, so what, you'll, what you'll end up having is this thing where you have economists or investment experts like they've been doing for the last few quarters saying, oh, we're about to go into recession, we're about to go into recession, we're about to go into recession, and it doesn't happen. Or you see all these analysts saying, um, you know, kind of the rebound um, that, that we've we've experienced this year and late last year. You know, it's 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 not real, uh, or people saying it is real. So you have all these people predicting different different things, and they're horrible. They're horrible at predicting what's going to happen in the future. The point is that the stock market, made up of all of us, including retail investors, aren't. It's not like we're predicting what's going to happen in the stock market. We're, the stock market is foreshadowing what's going to happen in the economy, and it's not always right. So the Nobel Prize-winning economists quipped that the stock market has predicted nine of the last five recessions. Yeah. Right? So, so it's an ish. Like it's not, it's not perfect. But if there's going to be a turn either from uh, the market going up or from the market bottoming and coming back down, it's going to happen in advance of – the economic news.
0: So we saw a market correction in 2022, and that mm-hmm. the market, the Dow fell, the S and P fell, all that sort of thing, quite a bit. Um, are we now in a recovery in the stock market? Maybe I mean the economy hasn't really fallen into a recession. Yeah, Is right. the stock market really in a
1: recovery at this point? Um, I don't know. That's a that's a great question. I I don't know if you know. I think some. You know, the, the stock market so far, the, the recovery has been very narrow. It's been on the back of a, you know, a handful of mega cap tech stocks. Um, a lot of the, the stock has, market hasn't done nearly as well. And I've, I've read, read people that have said, oh, well, you know, it's, such a, it, it's so narrow, it's a mirage. And other people that have done analysis say, you know, this often happens, you know, whether it's tech stocks or anything else, you often see narrow uh, recoveries and then the rest of the market follows. So who knows? Who knows? Time will tell. You talk about it in your it's book. Sort of, that's kind of a theme in my book is, is you know, the book's called The Uncertainty Solution. And right. The solution isn't that you read the book and you have more certainty. The solution is, is to accept the fact that uncertainty is inherent um, and it's going to be with us and that the future is inherently unknowable. And my book really gives tools. I have 35 what's known as mental models in the book that help investors focus on what they can know. And what they can control instead of doing things that aren't as effective, which is, for example, listening to experts and their opinions of what's going to happen.
0: Yeah, you have a whole chapter on bearing experts – beware of experts bearing predictions, right? Yeah,
1: yeah. Beware. and. and,
0: and, and you know, those experts are, you know, the economists that we talk to, yeah. the, the financial analysts that indicate whether or not a, mar- a particular stock is going to go up and down by yeah. producing analyst reports that Warren Buffett basically said are useless. Um are. Yeah. Okay. I want to talk to, about, talk to you a little bit about that. Uh, but right now, we're going to take a break and we're going to come back and talk with John a lot more about his book. Um The Uncertainty Factor, and as as I said before, I found this book fascinating. We want to get into some more details, so we'll be right back after this break. Okay, so this is an opportunity to take a break, and we'll come back. Okay, You've been listening to the Really Simple Investing Podcast. Our guest today is John Jennings, the author of The Uncertainty Factor, a book that, in my mind, shakes up how everybody should think about investing. And we talked a little bit, John, about beware of experts that are bearing predictions and that market cycles are hard to predict and that maybe you shouldn't even try to do that and you talked about something about mind models
1: that you have in your book. Yeah, yes. And yeah, real quick, the book's called The Uncertainty Solution, not The Uncertainty Factor, even though that is a great name. Maybe it should have been The Uncertainty Factor. <laughs> <laughs> okay, we'll we'll fix that in the edit. Um, yeah, so it it anyway, the, the 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 book is is really about mental models and the concept of mental models was championed by Charlie Munger, of, of course, Warren Buffett's business partner. And really, what he talks about with mental models is within respect to making better business decisions and life decisions. And, and what I realized and, and learned through a lot of study and research is is great investors have mental models that they fall back on. So the ones in my book are investment-focused, but also have a lot of ap- applicability outside of the investment realm, both in business and in, in real life. So one we just mentioned is the stock market's not the economy. And, and I think that's an important one to know, which which really says that it, that you, you can't use economic news or what's happening in the economy to tell you what to do to invest. And I'll tell you, at first it may seem like, well, that's useless, right? Um, how does that help? And here's how it helps. By knowing that, you can tell yourself that you're not going to react to news that is – coming uh, about the economy or politics or anything else to affect your investments. And just by doing that, you'll have better investing behavior. And and by having better investing behavior, you'll be a much better investor. Um, Other mental models include, like I talk about correlation and causation, and it's so important to understand Um, you know, that difference and also about understanding market cycles. So as an investor, as you build what Charlie Munger calls a lattice work of mental models, it can really help you be a better investor. And the uncertainty solution is, is not be so disturbed or emotional about uncertainty and say, I'm going to focus on what I do know and what I can control. And for the average retail investor, the
0: person that would typically listen to this podcast, because we're trying to simplify investing. What are the things that I should know about investing? Uh, if I'm going to get into investing, I mean, one of the things you talk about is you can't time the market. And I'm Mm -hmm. assuming that that also means that you shouldn't be a short term investor. You really should be investing for the term. But what are some of the other, you know, principles that I should lay onto as a, as a starting investor?
1: Well, I think there's a few things, key things in terms of behavior. So again, if you get investment behavior, right. Um, You know, that's the most important factor in in being a successful long-term investor. And there's a few things that are are key aspects of of good behavior. And one is to choose, as your default, inactivity over activity. And and let me talk about a study or two that I mentioned in my book. And my favorite is, uh, one of my favorite investment studies I've ever read is called Boys Will Be Boys, Gender Differences in, in Investing. And these academics, these professors somehow got a unnamed in the study discount brokerage firm to give them 10 years of data on 35,000 investment accounts. And what they did is they looked at what are the differences in investment returns based on the genders of the account owners. Uh And what they found was, is that the top performing accounts belong to single females, followed by married females, obviously pulled down by their husbands, right? Mm -hmm. (laughs) Uh, Then married men pulled up by their wives, and bringing up the rear were the single males. And they dug into why is that? Why are these, these gender differences? And they found that both genders, regardless of marital status, were equally as bad in making investment moves. So in general, every time one of these investors sold something and bought something else, what they bought did worse than what they sold. So in other words, every time they traded, on average, they lost money over the long term.
0: So one so, of the, cert- the certainties don't do anything.
1: Yeah, right. Okay. So, so what they found is the reason why... The males underperformed the females. Uh-huh. It's because they were more overconfident. The females traded 45% less. So if you're going to lose money on every trade, it makes sense to trade less, to have less activity. And there's other studies that have confirmed this. Fidelity, you know, it was an internal study that wasn't published but it was reported on the media. They looked over 10 years, what are our highest performing accounts? It was that of dead people and locked accounts, right? <laughs> so so – So they were inactive. There was an amazing study done of pension plan sponsors. So these are pension plans. They have Mm -hmm. professional staff. They use consultants. They know what they're doing. And they found the same thing where the investment funds that they fired outperformed the ones they hired. So even professionals do this. And I'll tell you, when I read that study, which was published in 2012, what we started doing as a firm is keeping track of our investment decisions. It's like we kept this investment decision journal. And we started finding the same thing, where moves that we made, on average, were bad. So if we said, "Oh, we should, um, you know, fire this manager or hire this manager or quit this strategy and do this other strategy," those movements, on average, were just like pension plans and, you know, female versus male investors. Just uh, in inactivity, it should be your default. Now there are times you have to take activity, like if you are saving money and investing it. You have to put it somewhere. Right. If you need to withdraw from your account, you need to pull it out. If you have uh, an asset allocation, let's say have 80% stocks and 20% bonds, and the stocks get up to 90%, you should sell and bring it back down to you know, 80%. So there's, there are things that you should do, but your default should be inactivity. And when you feel uncertain about the markets or what your portfolio is like, in general, don't do anything. And you mentioned rebalancing
0: of your yeah. portfolio, but how frequently would you recommend doing that? I would suggest once a year.
1: Is that about the right mm-hmm. time period? Yeah, one through, I think once a year is great. Um, what what we do – so our, our clients are extremely wealthy. We generally work in the you know $100 million and up family sort of range. So we, we have you know situations where we very rarely need to rebalance because our clients are either adding money or taking money out. And I think that's true probably of most people. So, what you would do is is again, if you have this eighty twenty allocation and your stocks are at you know seventy eight percent you're adding money you you add to stocks or if you're looking to withdraw money and you're seventy at eight and you know twenty two and your your allocation is eighty twenty you, you take from bonds so you know mostly you can keep it pretty tight just by additions and withdrawals really, where we see we need to do rebalancing is um only when you know, things like March of 2020 or you know, 2008, 2009, you know, when things really get out of whack, because usually you, you can kind of keep it closer. And I think the most important thing is to have a discipline about it. So like your 401k plan, like my 401k plan at Vanguard rebalances twice a year. And because there's no tax consequence, it takes it back exactly. For our taxable accounts, we look at it quarterly, but we have a range, so only we, we only rebalance when we get back out of range so yeah, it, the most important thing is to have a discipline um, We've looked at a lot of studies we've run some ourselves on the best rebalancing, and you know plan you know procedure a versus B versus c they're they're all about the same you know mm-hmm. there's there's very little difference between them from what we've seen so. It Warren Buffett is famously quoted as mm-hmm. saying
0: that the average retail investor should invest in the S and P 500 index fund for their lifetime. You know, and his favorite holding period is forever. So mm-hmm. this kind of goes in consistent with what you're saying about investing. Do you agree with what Warren Buffett is saying, or oh, is there right, more to right,
1: it? No, I absolutely do. And it's, it's kind of interesting. I mean, another reason I wrote this book is because we work with like the wealthiest of the wealthy. And we get to see what all sorts of huge investment firms, you know, Goldman Sachs and Merrill Lynch and Morgan Stanley and Northern Trust and on and on, and all these top investment managers, we get to see not just what they say they do, but what they actually do.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: <laughs> and it, it's fascinating. I'll tell you that it, it, there's no secret sauce. There's nobody out there that's just killing it. And mostly they're doing. It's kind of like you know this this adage of you see a duck, and they look very calm on the on the surface, but under underneath they're you know they're little Uh, are paddling and going crazy. There's a lot of just complexity and activity that. A lot of investment advisors do that add up to uh, underperformance and higher fees and higher taxes, and we see that over and over. So even for our clients that are, are super wealthy and can meet the very high minimums and get into the you know the fancy investment managers, when it comes to stocks and bonds, um, you know we we do a lot of indexing and in things like the S and P 500 and the Russell 2000 and the you know the Efi uh, Efa and the ACWI and things like that, and sometimes we do um, index funds that aren't capitalization weighted I talk about that a bit in my book that's that can be you know kind of fun for <laughs> for some people but yeah we do a lot of passive investing we use a handful of active managers but it's really you know for people that can handle that, that sort of volatility because a great active manager is going to hugely underperform for long periods of time and you got to be able to, to stomach that and then of course with the wealth of our clients we do we do invest in private equity venture capital private real estate but <laughs> on the on the stock side we mainly index absolutely
0: Sure. Now, you talk about the trend is not your friend. That's one of the titles of one of the chapters in your book. Uh, and basically, what you're saying here is that you don't really get much advantage by following trends, just invest in the entire market is basically what you're saying. Is that
1: yeah, good for really, the average can, investor? The genesis of this chapter is in, in response to, you know, really our, our firm just turned 21 years old, but it's really over the, the last two decades. Uh, where where clients will see a trend and they'll say I want to invest in that trend and really us digging in and researching that I mean whether it's been you know the the, the rise of cybersecurity stocks right okay. so I see they'd, they'd rightfully say you know the cybersecurity issue is only going to get worse I want to invest in cybersecurity stocks or robotics or genomics especially you know after um, you know mapping the genome and the rise of CRISPR technology you know now we're seeing AI we've seen electric vehicles et cetera, et cetera, and really looking at some mental models to use when evaluating trends. And, and our point is not that you never should invest in trends, but just to know the challenges. And, and the primary challenges are, you know, number one, it's hard to spot a trend early. And if you're spotting it, probably everybody else is too, right? Um, so I talk about that and some mental models. You know, the second is if you do spot a trend, it seems like it's going to persist. Sometimes it changes and changes quickly. hmm And it doesn't work out as you imagine. And then the third and most interestingly is that even if you spot a trend early enough and it persists, so you're right, like what do you invest in? And I think an interesting fact to remember is that Google was the 21st search engine, that it's rarely the market pioneers that go on to be the long-term successes. In fact, the the early pioneers have a huge amount of failure and and typically have less than 10% market share over the long run. Because what happens is is when there is a trend and there's going to be profitable, think about the early automobile industry. You have all these startups that come into the industry and established firms that are trying to make money. And so like the early car industry in the first two decades of the 20th century, 775 automobile firms went into business in the U.S. And during the same time period, 600 went out of business. So like which, even if you spotted the automobiles, like this great trend, which wasn't in which was not obvious in the first decade of the twentieth century. Which car company do you invest in of the seven hundred and seventy-five? It's it's incredibly hard to do. So it's it's not like you should never invest in in trends, but just realize if you're going to pick an individual stock, you know the odds are against you. It's better to to think like, well, if I'm broadly diversified in index, like take AI for example. Mm-hmm. Like you, if you own the S and P five hundred, you own Microsoft, which is a big shareholder of OpenAI, which is the the firm behind ChatGPT. Or you own Google, you know, Alphabet, which has their AI of BARD. And you have all these other companies that are doing AI that are just in the S&P 500. And then you have companies that aren't doing AI, but want to do AI, and likely will buy some of the private companies that are doing AI, right? Because they want to be competitive. Or you could invest with a, you know, an expert manager or and if you have enough money, a venture capital firm. But to try to do it yourself and say I'm going to pick AI stocks. You know, maybe you picked Nvidia, right? But but probably if you've owned it for a while it was because, you know, maybe it was the rise of video games and the promise of the meta the metaverse, right? Because cuz that was all the rage. And the video was doing that, but in all of a sudden it's no, they're great chips for AI. So it's it's really difficult to do. And, and again, I don't mean to just like throw like a, a wet blanket on everything and say everybody should just index all the time. And the future is completely unknowable. That's not the point. The point is having useful mental models to help you evaluate decisions you're going to make and have better behavior, or if you use a financial advisor, to be able to evaluate their advice.
0: And you have several mental models in your book that we have not had a chance to talk about yet. I would love to have you come back on the show a second time and talk more about those mental models. This has been, oh, a, tr- this has been a tremendous introduction to some of the ideas that's in your book, um, and I really appreciate you taking the time to talk to us about these today. Uh, this is really just kind of, you know, skimmed the surface of what this book is about. Um, so I think everybody should read this book. That would be my recommendation. Uh, Thank you. Yeah. yeah. And um, I've really enjoyed talking with you today, John. Thanks so much. Thanks. I've enjoyed it as well. Thank you. Yeah. and.